from the spring blooming studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another exacting episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. Dogwoods are beautiful flowering trees native to both sides of the U.S., but they can be seriously finicky. I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll discuss what to do with the distressed dogwood that was planted in memory of a loved one. Plus, lots of your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and resolvingly redundant repudiations. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens. It's all coming up faster than you picking the perfect plant for your plot right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, the dogwood dilemma. What do you do when a plant that is subject to all kinds of ills is planted in memory of a loved one and it starts to pass away itself? These are troubling issues. So we're going to address it and we're going to talk about what dogwoods need to really thrive. And of course, I'm going to tell you to pick a different plant. Uh, In between... Lots of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. 888-492-9444. Zoe, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for being had, and I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. How is Zoe doing? I'm doing well. And Where? I am calling from Lawrence, New Jersey. It's just north of Trenton and just south of Princeton. I was going to say, is it near Lawrenceville? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Lawrenceville, Lawrence Township. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. I um, I used to speak there on a very regular basis. They had um, a mm. community group uh, based in Lawrenceville, Sustainable Lawrenceville, I think it was. And mm-hmm. they were doing great things with their grounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll have to check. I'll have to see if they're still uh, active. Yeah, just search. I know it was sustainable Lawrenceville. Sustainable fill in the blank is kind of a national thing. Uh, but they mm-hmm. were the first uh, sustainable community um, that I knew of personally. So, what can we do for Zoe near Princeton? <laughs> well, I um, I want to increase my native gardening, um, gardening with native cultivars, and I'm a little, I'm just feeling a little in over my head. I don't quite know how to go about it. Um, I wanted to see if you had any recommendations for like low maintenance native ground covers to to fill in some of the areas with grass or English ivy, um, you know, things that would help native pollinators and local biodiversity 
those, you know, any, and also just, you know, whether, like, I don't know the best way to go about increasing those native plantings. Like, do I do seeds? Do I try to find seeds and uh, plant from seeds or just, um, I mean, that's probably the most economical way, but I didn't know. I'm, you know, I'm used to just buying gallon perennials at my local nursery. That's my, uh, <laughs> what I'm most familiar with. Well, things would be very different um, with ground covers that are either native mm -hmm. or very mm -hmm. pollinator friendly. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm kind of guessing that you already have ivy covering the ground. So, yeah, my front yard is the place where I was going to try to make more, you know, meadowy or, or wildflower-y. And it has grass and a patch of English ivy that's also, I have some wineberry canes nestled in along a fence where the ivy is rampant. So it's, you know, it's not like I can just solarize it because I have my wineberry canes in the same place. So it's it's kind of a, unless I wanted to just, sacrifice them as well to uh to plant native boy i would hate to i love the taste of wine I berries. Know. they are a great plant um they're not native but the birds don't seem to know that they don't seem to care and i don't think i've eaten any because the birds usually get them first but that's fine oh yeah <laughs> no i'm i'm out there fighting for my breakfast so ivy whether you truly have english ivy or yeah, there is a, a society, and I'm not certain of the exact wording of their name, whether it's American Ivy or whether it's just the Ivy Society, but you should be able to find them very easily. They have a very valuable website that talks about mm -hmm. the different kinds of Ivy. And we used to talk to them a lot on the show and they used to insist that um, if ivy was out of control and taking over structures and causing damage, it was Irish ivy. Like we don't get enough blame for everything already. And not English ivy. But eradicating ivy is very difficult because of the waxy leaves. Whether you're using a commercial um, herbicide or an organic one, everything just rolls right off those leaves. And going yeah. after it more destructively uh, would really damage uh, your soil and the health of your property. Um, how big an area are we talking about? Oh, geez. That part I'm not good at measuring. Uh, uh, with. I mean, it's a fairly big front yard. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, oh, geez, 24 feet long by maybe four feet wide with the ivy. Okay. And you have other space besides that? I do. I do. I have other space. I have other beds. I just thought that would be a good place to kind of start. No. <laughs> it would be the worst place to start. Um, oh. Ivy, well, you know, on the positive side, Ivy uh -huh. is bulletproof. It's green uh -huh. all year round. And uh, many varieties are very attractive. Mm -hmm. Now, I would never tell someone uh, to plant it. But once mm -hmm. it's in the ground, I think your best option would be for either you or a professional to install edging 
around mm. the surrounding areas mm. um, to keep it from spreading even further, because it will. It'll take over everything. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, if the ivy starts crawling up the barriers, then it's easy to take care of with a flame weeder. You can just stand mm. there and toast the um, the aggressive plants that are trying to get over that barrier. That's a good idea. So just contain it rather than try to eradicate it and oh, then man. use the other areas to plant natives or, or whatever else. I don't know what your budget or tolerance for destruction is, but I mean, <laughs> I, I, would, I would think a backhoe would almost have to be involved without poisoning the oh. soil. Boy, oh boy. So you yeah, yeah. can contain it, I mean, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. um, make up for your sins by planting natives. Now, mm-hmm, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. You are right right outside of Lawrenceville, and they mm-hmm. did a tremendous amount of research on native plants uh, to add to their landscaping. So I would use those as a resource because they're in your microclimate. Mm-hmm. They're in your backyard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for ground covers, you would probably be best off installing small plants like mm-hmm. the, you know, like the tomato and pepper starts, that kind of size that you would get okay. at your local garden center. Okay. And uh, anything big, any easy care perennials, yeah, you want to you wanna buy them in at least a one-gallon container. So mm-hmm. the, be- okay. the best thing you can do, besides mm-hmm. investigating Lawrenceville, is go to the New Jersey State Extension website, uh, type mm-hmm. in native plants, and mm-hmm. you'll be given a whole list. And then you can overlay that with easy care. Native plants tend to be pretty easy care because they evolved here. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, and that way you'll get a list. Don't get a list off the Internet or even any kind Mm -hmm. of national uh, society Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's not localized to you. Um, Mm -hmm. A native plant from California would not be native in New Jersey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, see, I didn't realize that the bees feed on the native uh, pollen and nectar and everything and that the, you know, the bee food was... You know, the birds don't seem to care, but I didn't realize that my dad started volunteering um, with some bee organizations. And so he uh, actually educated me about the the bee food. Oh, yeah. No, um, typically native bees uh, especially will come to um, native plants. And there are a lot of beekeepers in your region whose honeybees mm-hmm. will forage. Um a little extra advice if you're looking mm-hmm. uh, to provide habitat and food for bees, think of flowers that are white or mm-hmm. blue. Against all odds, bees are less interested in red flowers than other colors. Mm. Okay. All right. Very good. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's some homework for you. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. All right. Well, I appreciate it. My pleasure. You take care now. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. 
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and warn everybody out there that despite the weather, it is now time to start organizing your supplies if you intend to start some of your own plants from seed. But don't go searching the basement and your shed for potting soil and grow lights just yet, because we'll be right back to take more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, dogwoods can be dicey. They're very disease-prone plants in certain conditions. So we're going to warn you up front what they like, what they can't tolerate, so that you can choose whether or not to grow one in your own garden. In the meantime, let's grow more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. 9-2-94-44. Jennifer, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks so much, Mike. Well, thank you, Jennifer. How are you? I'm doing okay today. And thank you. Where, <laughs> this time of year, that's the best some of us can do. Um where are you doing okay? Well, I am hanging on knowing that tomorrow will be February and it'll be a little closer to spring. Mm-hmm. And I'm here at uh, Hudson Estates uh, Senior Independent Living in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, are you a resident or a worker or an executive? I am a, the executive chef here. Okay. And that being said... Um, we create, you know, quite a bit of food waste, and mm-hmm. we're really interested in uh, getting some composting going here. Okay. So how many residents are there? Well, currently we have about 108 residents. Wow. We're, um, we're talking about yeah, a lot of material. A, well, what we're really talking about is not the material from them. They they actually don't have kitchens. They come down and eat my food three meals a day. Right. And, 
yeah, so it's really all the the waste that'll come, all the all the the, the green waste that'll come out of the kitchen. Okay, so good because there are two types of food waste in this kind of situation, and the the one that's easiest to use is the green waste as you're preparing things, the outside of lettuce leaves, you know, uh, broccoli stalks, things like that that have not been cooked or put on a plate. Those are relatively easy to compost, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The other material is what's left on the plate after people have finished. And because that has been cooked and probably has salt and has some fat in there, that needs to be composted separately and differently. Now, I would imagine, based on the size of your facility, um, that even the kitchen waste before the plates go out um, is an enormous amount. Uh, yeah, it actually is uh, It's a pretty decent amount. I'm very fortunate to uh, be able to use a fresh produce company rather than having to buy any kind of frozen vegetables or anything like that. And so in season, I'm, I'm getting much of my produce from Lancaster County or the area, which I love. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, everything comes in fresh. So we do um, definitely generate between, you know, citrus peels or lettuce leaves, as you said. Um, we All our vegetables are prepared fresh, so there's lots of trimmings and onion ends and things like that. So that's definitely where we were looking to um, really aim the composting. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned two things there. Citrus um, is difficult, if not impossible, to compost. And because you're going to be relying on worms, no matter what's going on. And citrus is toxic to worms. Um, I'm glad you brought up those two items uh, because citrus is difficult, if not impossible, uh, to compost. It can be very toxic to both earthworms and compost worms. And there are some concerns about using too much onion in a compost pile or a worm bin. Um, But all the other stuff you're working with um, will be fine. Now, uh, uh, just a a little diversion. The best use for um, citrus peels and things like that is you need to find a company that can process them. Um, But they are actually the prime ingredient um, for both natural pesticide sprays, natural cleaning products. I mean, they're very useful, uh, but not in terms of feeding worms. Now, um, you're in, uh, you're in Pennsylvania. Yeah, you're in Pennsylvania. So it would, what are our options for brown material? Because it's difficult to just compost uh, green material. Well, we um, have a really lovely um, 
location where we back up to some, some woods um, and we do have some landscaped areas with trees. So we have the opportunity to get, to get the leaves just from pretty much right on the property. And um, probably I would think with the, the landscapers that we could let, ask them to leave some of the grass clippings for us so we could have that green if we needed it. But you'd have to make sure that the grass is not chemically treated with weed and feed or stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. So, do you, and do you know that that's true? That would be a great exception to the rule. Yeah, <laughs> it probably would. Um, I do believe because pets are allowed here, uh, that they don't spray the grass. Don't assume. But I can find out. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't. Yeah. Uh, I, I, but will, I, I can certainly find that out. If your landscaper uh, would simply shred the leaves up for you and dump them into a massive bin, then you're getting started. Um, then. Oh, okay. Yes. You, you want mostly brown material. So we're talking about a massive bin. Uh, but the advantage of that is that can be outdoors because the more material, the hotter the pile will become. And rather than freeze to death, uh, the worms that make all this material compost can hover around the center where the heat is. Otherwise... Um, Worm bins and devices like this really have to be indoors. But with the kind of bulk you're talking about, I think you'd be safe outdoors. And it would be, um, you know, shredded leaves. And then you would add your material as you get your material. And what I would suggest you need is some sort of device to constantly turn the material, a kind of an auger. And these are very common in professional composting systems because you don't want the leaves to be on the bottom and all the lettuce and broccoli and all that stuff on top. You know, you want to keep it mixed up. So there are companies that supply these kind of devices and also the enclosures. Now, if you wanted to get into the leftovers on the plate, there is another type of composting, anaerobic, in a sealed metal uh, container, you know, a, a pretty big one, you know. And that you can just feed your stuff into. And there would be specialized compost worms in there, and they would transform the material. You may have to add some other materials to it. Um, oh, I, th I think you can buy alfalfa pellets or something like that to create a, um, a complete system. But these are becoming more and more popular. There's a lot of research about this on college campuses. It is a bit labor-intensive, um, but you wouldn't be throwing anything away. Right. Yeah, I think what we're going to, what we'd like to start with, because our garden club is, is small but growing, and we'd like it to grow faster, 
um, really uh, sparked some interest. But I had been looking at the um, the worm bags, uh, the ones that are made actually down, I think, in Plymouth Meeting. I don't know if you've heard of them, the urban worm. Um, continue. And um, they are actually my brother has two of them. He has a small farm up in Massachusetts. And they're fortunate enough to actually have a whole root cellar. So they keep their, their worm bags in their root cellar. Um, we were looking to work within this to begin. Uh, we don't have a tremendous garden. So it would really mostly be for the, these raised flower and vegetable beds that we have. And um, we could keep it inside during the cold weather. And then the ideal would be to move it out to the gardening shed in warmer weather. You need a and lot of bags. That's kind of where we thought we'd start. You'd need a lot of bags. Okay. And does he, <laughs> does he, he doesn't simply compost kitchen waste in the bags, does he? He just, he, no, it's, it's, I haven't read all of the, the requirements with it, but I know it's, it's a, it's a combination. I, I think, I don't know how it, it comes with the ba- the worms and it comes with some starter soil. Mm-hmm. And then, you you feed it what you know it tells you and i guess the schedule of how hungry the worms are that day <laughs> i'm really just learning about it and uh you know i know for sure that we wouldn't be able to utilize all of our vegetable waste which is okay because um i actually do not not the the outer scraps but with you know certain ends of celery and carrots and some other and broccoli and, and cauliflower, I do also make fresh vegetable stock. So oh, as of now, not all of, it's not all going to waste. We were just really interested in finding a way to sort of take our baby steps, stick our, stick our toe in the water of, of composting before we, we go whole into it. Well, if you want to try these um, worm bags, um, why don't you start out, um, and I presume they come with the worms, so you would probably need a steady supply of worms as you filled up a bag and then moved to the next bag. Uh, but that's generally not a problem when you're dealing with these kind of companies. And I would start out slow, and if you've got an area that's protected from freezing, uh, one of the things I like about this is... Um, People who do want to get their hands dirty and still have that ability and everything, they could just grab a bag. Right. And I think that it would be really nice to be able to, like I said, garner some more interest. We do um, at this community try to um, really be a little more forward thinking. Uh, As I said, it's an independent living community, so people are active, they're out and about, and I bring them fresh food and and change up their menus and keep them interested. And I think they they are people who are concerned about what they eat, where it comes from, how it's grown. So I think this would be something that they could really latch on to. And I think uh, you're not alone. This is a big wave uh, throughout communities like this where they want to contribute to this solution. So I would also urge you to go to the website for the National Composting Council. Um, They have advice there on all levels of composting, from like one-person kitchen waste to institutional food, and you'd get a lot of ideas there. 
Uh, but I, since you've got this connection and uh, you, it seems to work well, I would start out with a bunch of bags and see what happens. Terrific. All right. We got to go. Well, thank you for having me on, and, and thanks for all of that great information. I'm going to start doing some more reading. Excellent. Excellent. And I wish you great luck and success, and thank you um, for being part of the solution. Thanks so much. It matters to me. All right. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody that my return to the Connecticut Flower and Garden Show at the Hartford Convention Center is fast approaching. I'll answer your garden questions live on Friday afternoon, February 23rd, and then deliver important advice about tomato growing, composting, and raised bed building on Saturday the 24th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with a serious dogwood discussion and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we are, we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens, in just a little bit. We'll tell you all about the dread diseases that can affect dogwoods and illustrate the perfect conditions for growing them that can avoid these terrible problems. In the meantime, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls. 888-492-9444. David, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks for uh, putting me on. Well, thanks for being put on, I guess. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm just ducky. Thanks for asking. Where is David doing well? In State College, Pennsylvania. Ah, WPSU, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's, uh, we get a lot of calls and messages from there. It's great. Oh, do you? Yeah, hey. yeah I've been a longtime member of them. Okay. Well, what can we do you for? Well, I've been doing a little bit of looking to find a uh, leaf shredder that doesn't have to run on gas. Uh, You talk a lot about how we need to break the leaves up into small parts. Um, 
And yet I'm not fi- having any success at finding something like that. So I thought maybe you as the expert would be able to help point me in the right direction. Well, I'm surprised because the trend in home stores and garden centers and places like that is towards corded and or rechargeable devices. Boy, I I can't even I mean, I know that there's gasoline powered leaf blowers out there that landscapers insist on using, but I haven't seen a gasoline powered leaf shredder in ages. Ah. Okay. So I was looking for something that was human powered if possible. Human powered. Um well, if you know, I don't know what the lawns are like there. Are they treated um, by the college? You know, for... uh, no. Well, at least my own my own property is not. Um... Okay, so you're talking about your house? Yeah, just about my house. Well, um, do you know what kind of grass you have? Um, I think it's the Penn State blend. Okay, so that would be fescue and bluegrass. I think that that sounds familiar. Yeah, and we. We grind up as much of the leaves and, and leave them on the on the ground as we can. But you know, for a couple of weeks, it overwhelms the system, and we, we so we have a lot of extra leaves. And I wanted some way of turning them into compost. Well, I would think because your lawn is free of chemicals, um, that uh, either a battery powered or a corded electric lawnmower would be your best bet. Mostly because you can adjust the setting so that you're not cutting the grass too short. One of the problems with quote real mowers R E E L is uh, they often don't have an adaption to cut the grass high enough. You know, they cut it very low to the ground, which people used to think, you know, means they won't have to mow as often, but instead it shocks the grass um, makes it grow even faster, makes it grow unevenly. And I see. if you get a battery-powered push mower, uh, which I, I have both a battery-powered push mower and an older corded um, lawnmower, that see. is a mulching mower, and that's dedicated to um, leaving the clippings and the shredded leaves on the lawn whereby you can now buy either corded or battery-powered lawnmowers that come with a grass catcher, which is what you're going to need, whether it's a grass catcher or the typical bag for a walk-behind mower. Because when, when you're shredding as you're mowing and you're making that perfect combination of dry brown carbon material, which is the shredded leaves, and the wet green nitrogen-rich material, uh, which is the grass clippings. And you pile those up in a big pile, and you will see steam rising from it in late Mm -hmm. fall. It will compost very quickly, and the compost will be complete and well balanced. Great. Now, well, that, that's uh, what I certainly what I'm looking for. Yeah, and especially because the leaves are on your lawn. Yeah. Yeah, and I would also say that if you want to get some exercise out of it, 
get an old-fashioned rake, get a good quality one, and when you're when you're done with the leaves that were on the lawn, uh, go over those, rake them up onto the lawn itself, and go over those again a week later. Right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. I hadn't really thought about just using a lawnmower to do what I wanted to wanted to accomplish. So that that would work. Well, it sounds like in your situation, it might be um, more applicable than a leaf shredder. But if you want to go into one of the electric machines that shreds the leaves and deposits them in a collection bag, I urge you to look for one with the highest mulching ratio. Some will have okay. a mulching ratio of 12. 20 is the top and 20 is the best. And what those things mean is you can take 12 bags of whole leaves and put uh-huh. them into a single bag with a 12 to 1 mulcher, whereby Got you it. can take 20 bags of shredded leaves and put them in a single same size bag when you've got the 20 to 1. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, sir. Well, I, th- I think the lawnmower sounds like a good option. I, I like it because you're making, you're not just getting um, mulch, you're making compost and you're making yeah. excellent compost. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. My pleasure. And say hi to everybody there in Happy Valley for us. Will do. All right. All right. Take care, David. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. As always, it is now time for the question of the week, which we are calling a dogwood dilemma. A while back, Elaine from Washington State wrote, on a recent show, you addressed maple tree wilt. I'm wondering if this disease or something similar can also affect dogwoods. We planted a memorial dogwood tree to honor my dad after he passed, and it is not doing well, and we are desperate to save it. It previously flowered nicely, but this past year it did not. The lower branches have died. Much appreciation for any help you can provide. The maple tree wilt we discussed was a form of verticillium, the pathogen that kills tomatoes if they are planted in the same spot year after year. Slight digression as this is a great time of year to discuss tomato rotation. The problem occurs when a soil-borne wilt named verticillium interacts with the roots of tomatoes, other plants as well, but it's much more pronounced in tomatoes. There's no problem the first year a tomato is planted in a certain patch of ground. But if tomatoes are planted in that same spot the following year, there may be a little yellowing of the lower leaves, but the harvest should not be affected. Ah, but if you use that same spot again a third year, that yellowing will begin earlier, progress faster, and could affect the harvest. A fourth year? Forget it. That generally means an early tomato plant death. So plan now for a two- to three-year rotation of your tomatoes. Good news, after a patch of ground has remained tomato-free for a few years, it's safe to use that spot again. Uh, But you don't have verticillium. In fact, most sources speculate that dogwoods are naturally resistant to this condition. Unfortunately, they are prone to many other problems, 
especially Anthracnos, a very nasty actor. Now, you don't specify which part of Washington state in which you reside, which makes a big difference. The west coast of the state is notoriously damp and wet, the kind of weather that makes it difficult to keep dogwoods healthy as they don't like being wet. Damp conditions are ideal for the spread of many diseases with anthracnose at the top of the list. A subspecies known as the Pacific Coast dogwood has the best chance of survival there. Years ago, listeners in Spokane informed me that they are not Seattle. In fact, the east side of the state, where Spokane or Spokane is located, is surprisingly dry. That makes it an excellent climate for dogwoods as long as their roots are kept well watered during dry times. There are over 50 varieties of dogwood, but the main types for our purpose here are the eastern dogwood, which is native from Canada down to Florida and west to the Rockies, and the Pacific dogwood, which is clustered around a relatively small area of the Pacific Northwest. If you do live near the coast, a non-Pacific dogwood would not be your best choice. And when a dogwood has problems when it's planted in its proper region, it's probably not salvageable. That's why I always beg people not to plant a tree or shrub in memory of a loved one. Instead, install a park bench in their honor or an archway or a gazebo or a similar structure. If it has to be a plant, go to your state extension services website and research which plants in your specific region are long-lived, disease-resistant, and, quote, bulletproof. Now, there are varieties of dogwood that have shown resistance to anthracnose, but the Pacific strain is not one of them. So in this case, even going native could have worked against you. To quote the Davy Tree Care Company, anthracnose attacks twigs, branches, trunks, and leaves of dogwoods in cool, wet weather. Tan, blotchy leaf spots are early signs of infection. The disease can leave dead leaves and twigs that remain attached to the tree. If the disease reaches the main trunk, it can kill the tree. I'll add that one sure sign of anthracnose would be gray and rumpled-looking leaves remaining on the tree over winter. So go out and take a look. Dead or diseased twigs, branches, and leaves should be pruned out over the winter. Then rake away any prunings or other debris under the tree and put it in the trash. Do not compost it. Dogwoods also need to be planted where the tree will receive morning sun and afternoon shade. They dislike intense all-day sun as much as they dislike having wet leaves. Their very shallow roots require supplemental watering during extended periods of dry weather, especially during their first few years. To prevent disease, prune crowded trees in the spring after the flowers fade to maximize internal airflow. Airflow is the enemy of disease. Ah, but like all things that make dogwoods contradictory, 
This spring pruning opens the tree up to attack by boring insects. And dogwoods also bleed their sap heavily when pruned. Wild dogwoods seem to do just fine. But I have long felt that intentionally planted ones can be extremely difficult to care for. Although it's easy to emphasize the problems caused by excessive moisture, lack of tolerance to drought may be their biggest enemy. Dogwoods must be watered during dry times. My suggestion here is to prevent future heartache. Cut down the tree, pull out the roots, clean up the soil surface, cover it with compost, and plant a tree that's recommended by your state extension system in a different place. Well, that sure was a dire warning about picking the right plant for your place now, wasn't it? Luckily, you can read this awesome advice over at your leisure or your leisure at the Gardens Alive section of the Gurneys, G-U-R-N-E-Y-S, website. Please visit the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page for a direct link. Yikes, my producer is threatening to deface my dogwoods if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your phone number and your location. You'll find all of our contact information, plus audio of this show, audio and video of previous shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a public radio show and podcast produced and delivered to you every week from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he saw a double feature of King Kong and Mighty Joe Young at a Saturday matinee at the Mervyn Theater in the early 60s. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Joni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey, and our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work and keep up with what's happening with our show, The Question of the Week, and your fellow gardeners at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Jasmine Griffin. Our irreplaceable audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Zach the Takwasneski and Ducky the Dancing Duck are in the house. Our beloved and beleaguered CEO is Tim Fallon. I'm your finely shoveled out host, Mike McGrath, and I'll be rooting around my seed packets to see what I might need to order for this spring until I see you again next week.